For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in John chapter 8. There's an important note about this passage. If you're looking through your Bible, uh, you might find that it's in italics. You might find that there's a footnote. Uh, In the NLT, you'll see something like this, where it notes that most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to John 8.11. And what they're doing is they're including this, this passage in the Bible, but they're letting you know that you know, what they, the way that they bring an English translation is they go and they find the oldest manuscripts that they can find, which were originally written in Greek, and they translate it over into the English. And from time to time, new manuscripts are uncovered, and they match amazingly well with the manuscripts that we have. But what they're saying here is that a lot of the oldest manuscripts, not all, but many of the oldest manuscripts we have don't contain this section of the book of John. And so they're responsibly, they're including it, but they're letting you know this is an odd thing about this section of scripture. And so it sort of opens this question of, okay, so is this scripture or is this not scripture? Does this belong here? And what we can do is we can go back and we can look at Uh, the writings of the early church fathers, people who were Christians, who were leaders in the church, you know, as far back as we can find, and we actually find comments from them about this passage. The Didascalia was written in 230, and it talks about, it's uh, not a translation of scripture, but it's a collection of teachings and writings, and uh, it talks about this passage. Papias, who lived around 120 BC, talks about this passage. Jerome uh, talks about how the manuscripts that he had available to him in 400 AD, many of them did have this. So he would have had access living in 400 AD to manuscripts that we don't have now. Augustine, who was writing around 400 AD, actually uncovers for us what apparently was a a plot by people who were offended by this story to remove it from scripture. He writes, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I think, lest their wives should be given impunity and sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress. As if he who had said, sin no more, had granted permission to sin. And so this kind of thing is why we have confidence in this passage that it belongs here. But it's helpful to note that if you go back and you look at some of the oldest manuscripts that we have that we use to translate the English version, a lot of them are missing this passage. And we go back in history and we understand why. People were shocked and afraid by the grace of God and how he would actually interact with an adulteress and tell her that she's forgiven. But that's that's what we're doing here is we're trying to find out what is God like? How does God view us and how does God work in human situations? That's what a gospel is. It's God come to dwell among us and dealing with things that we deal with. And we learn about him through that process. 
And so where we find ourselves in the book of John is Jesus is having this polarizing effect. He's sort of driving people into one of two camps about himself. A lot of people are starting to conclude this is the Messiah. Look at the miracles that he does. Look at the the way that he speaks. Look at the way that he represents God. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And others are saying he is a demon and he should be killed because he's a threat to the religion of our fathers. And those are sort of the two responses that they're having. And we saw last week that Jesus, you know, is sort of laying low and he's sort of like showing up, but kind of trying to be on the down low in certain situations. And this big feast, the Feast of Booths, the Sukkot, uh, was happening. It's a week-long festival. And he sneaks in by himself without a big crowd and then just pops up in the temple and starts teaching and then kind of melts into the crowd. And then during the water ceremony and the Feast of Tabernacles, he stands up in the midst of everything that's going on and starts making these declarations and teachings. And then it says like, but they didn't grab a hold of him because his time had not come. And he kind of melts into the crowd. He's doing like guerrilla warfare with theology. (laughs) And it's creating this stir. And so his enemies are desperate to get rid of him. Because they feel like he is a false representation of the religion that they believe in. And so we get to John chapter 8, verse 1, and we read, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and then he came again into the temple. So he just shows up there in the temple, and people were coming to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach them. And while that was happening, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. And what then do you say? And then John lets us know they were saying this testing to him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. And Jesus stooped on the ground and wrote with his finger on the ground. Kind of a strange scene. But, you know, that's what's happening here is Jesus has again sort of appeared. He's in the temple. Word goes out to the Pharisees. He's in the temple. He's teaching. And they have a trap set for him. They interrupt his teaching in the middle. And they're like, hold up, everybody. Jesus, we need to know what your thoughts are on this. They hurl this woman into the middle of the room. Say, we've just caught her in the very act of adultery. And Jesus, you're a Bible teacher. You tell us what we should do. And what they're doing is they're very intentionally putting Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Okay? Israel is under Roman occupation. And the Romans would allow a certain amount of autonomy for the Jewish people to rule themselves, but there were limits. They had to pay their taxes for one. They had to be under the authority of the emperor for another. And they were not allowed to uh, prosecute a crime of capital punishment. That could only happen under a Roman court. They were not free to execute people and they're under their own authority. So because of that situation, if Jesus agrees with the law of Moses here, he is contradicting the law of Caesar. And that puts the Pharisees in a great position where they can say, this guy is a rebel, he's defying the emperor, and he's told us, you know, that we should, um, we should carry out this execution uh, against Roman law. 
and they can get rid of Jesus that way. On the other hand, it is the Mosaic law is that the penalty for adultery is death. And Jesus is a prophet, a Bible teacher, somebody who is dedicated their lives to the teaching of scripture, Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, can we talk about how extreme that is? We'll, we will, we'll get there. But the point is, is Jesus is on the horns of this dilemma because if he says, no, we should not carry out Deuteronomy 22:22, then he's contradicting scripture. He's advising the people to not follow the law of Moses and they can discredit him that way. See, he doesn't even believe in the Bible. So either way, Jesus goes, he's stuck and they're going to be rid of him. And you can tell they've been plotting this. They've been waiting for him to pop up. And it just so happens they have this charge and this woman ready to go. And so that's why John says they were saying these things, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. They're going to put him in an impossible situation. And what does Jesus do? He stoops down and just starts writing something in the dirt with his finger. And there's been great speculation about what is Jesus writing in the dirt with his finger, right? And it's really fun to guess. We don't know, but it's, it's fun to guess. People say things like maybe he's writing, you know, one of the great commandments is don't commit adultery. Another one is don't bear false testimony, Exodus 20:16. And so maybe he's communicating to them, I know this is a setup, right? I like to think maybe he's like sending them a message like everybody's standing around, but they would be able to see it. And he's saying, uh, are you sure you want to do this with me? <laughs> you know, I, I kind of like to think maybe he's doing that. Another possibility, though, that I like is maybe he's quoting the passage that they're quoting to him, which the passage they're quoting to him, we just read, says, then both of them shall die. Isn't that interesting? Deuteronomy 22, 22. Now, let's think about this. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. I mean, it's very specific, isn't it? Right? And let's look at what happened. Okay, it's saying both of them shall die. And when the Pharisees show up, what do they say? This woman has been caught in the very act. So one would have to conclude that the dude was present, <laughs> yet not captured. Why would that be? Why would that be? In fact, the laws of Israel were very strict on this because it was such an extreme penalty that they had to be caught in the very act. You couldn't just be like, see a guy and a girl walking out of a hotel room and be like, ha ha. No, they would have to be caught in the act of adultery and the law of the land was that both should be put to death at that point. And so the Pharisees show, show up, they're quoting Deuteronomy 22, but they have only brought the woman and they also reveal to us the way that they interpret scripture, right? They give us their interpretation. What is it? Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Isn't that interesting? Because this is what the Pharisees do. They take the part of the law that they want to follow and they enforce that. But the part that they don't want to follow, they forget. 
And so they're supposed to be these incredible scholars and students of the Old Testament, right? And the Bible couldn't be more clear. You bring both parties. And yet we see that the way that they've been interpreting this and include in the way that they're carrying it out is only a partial fulfillment of the law that they claim must be upheld. So what's clear from this situation is this. We know this is a setup, right? Jesus is popping in, popping out. They're having a hard time, you know, nailing down where he is and what he's doing. So they have a thing and it's like, the second he pops up, you know, we're gonna grab this woman and we're gonna make this accusation and we're gonna put him on the horns of this dilemma and then we will have no more Jesus problem because either the Romans will take care of him or he'll be discredited in the eyes of the people. Either way, we're good. We also see that they aren't interested in actually upholding the law of Moses. They don't seem either aware of the actual law of Moses here, which is unlikely, or they seem to have interpreted it in a way that is more convenient for them. Their goal is just to take Jesus down. And so what is Jesus going to do? He's got to do something here. And he's just stooping on the ground writing stuff. And you can tell they're getting impatient. It says in 7, they persisted in asking him. They said, uh, Jesus, what are you going to do? And so he straightens up and he says, okay. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Which is so awesome. It's so brilliant, Right? Because what does it do? It upholds the law of Moses. But it puts on them the reality of their sin and their problem. And what and it, it reveals to their hearts the evil that they're perpetrating against both Jesus and the woman. And then he stoops again on the ground and starts writing. I don't know what he's writing. He's writing so much, right? My favorite on this is he writes something like, don't mess with the Jesus man. (laughs) I told you, you didn't want to go there. He was probably nicer than I am and didn't write that. But now the Pharisees are on the horns of a dilemma, aren't they? Are they going to be so hypocritical claiming that, you know, they have the right to do this? And even if they do, then they are the ones deciding to stone her, not him. Now they have to choose what to do. And we read, when they heard this, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the temple court. And straightening up, Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from from now on and sin no more. Well, there's a lot there to unpack too. There's a lot of important questions from that interaction that we want to pull out and we want to think about. What do we learn about God here? What do we learn about scripture and how this works? You know, one of the, the reasons that this was starting to be edited out of the Bible by 2-300 AD was, it was like, you know, this is Jesus, this is God going soft on adultery. We can't have that, right? 
In a patriarchal society, you know, the idea that, you know, wives would start getting the idea that they could be forgiven and not go immediately to hell if they commit adultery, it'll be crazy. It'll be chaos. And so, you know, we asked that question. Did Jesus think adultery wasn't a big deal? That would be a good question that we could ask here. Let's look more closely at what he says in verse 11. He says, is there anybody here? To con- did anybody condemn you? And she says, no one. And he says, I do not condemn you either. Now, Jesus, as the sinless person, the only sinless person ever, let alone in the room, would be well within his rights to carry out the law, even under his own incredibly high standard. And what he says to her is, I'm not going to do this. Now, what does that mean? I don't condemn you. We know from this and other places in Scripture, Mark 2, that Jesus, as God, has the authority to forgive sins. He can say, your sins are forgiven. And that means that there will not be judgment for that person because of what they've done. God is going to divert the judgment that they deserve somewhere else. And this is interesting because it's important that we understand that Jesus saying, I don't condemn you, I'm forgiving your sins here, is not the same as saying that sin goes unpunished. God can do whatever God wants, but God is bound by the attributes of his own nature, his own character. And what I mean by that is God has told us that he is fully just. And to be fully just means that evil cannot go unpunished. So God, if he says to you, you're forgiven, it's not that he's just decided to let you get away with it. There must be punishment for what you've done or God is not just. He cannot just excuse and just be like, just don't tell anybody, but this time we're going to let it pass. There has to be justice for evil. So when God says to you or to the woman or to anyone else, you are forgiven for your sins, it's not that he's ignoring it and that he's going to punish the sins of some and not punish the sins of others because that would not be just. The Bible says very clearly in Romans 2, 11, 12, there is no partiality with God for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. God will not look at one person and say, I will, let, I will excuse you from the penalty of your sin. There's, we're just not gonna punish that one, but we will punish this one. That's not how God works. That would be unjust. So when Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you, what he's really saying is I will take the penalty for you. He's saying to her, she doesn't understand it in the moment, but she's under a death sentence. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to die so you don't have to today. When God forgives us of our sin, He's not excusing it. He's taking it upon himself. And that is very important that we understand. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 lays this out in a very powerful way. It says, he himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. 
For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You see, Jesus is a man, but he is also fully God. He has an eternal nature. And so when he goes up on the cross and when he dies, because of his eternal nature, he is able to take the death sentence for an infinite number of people. He's able to take the penalty of not just his... uh, the, the, the people who are around him, but for all people, for all time, the penalty that they deserve for the rebellion and the acts of evil that they commit, they are not forgotten. They are fully meted out by God on God so that the justice of God is upheld, the righteousness of God is upheld, but the mercy of God is upheld as well. And so when he says, I do not condemn you, this is something that he is paying a heavy price for, personally. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So when Jesus, the reason Jesus has the authority to forgive sins It's because he pays the price. It is such a powerful thing to recognize in this moment. This woman condemned. She is guilty. We might be tempted to think these are trumped up charges. They just grabbed somebody and, you know, said, sorry, we need you. But no, I mean, the likelihood was that she was a prostitute and that they had arranged something so that they could catch her in the very act by being with a married man. But Jesus acknowledges she is in fact guilty. The issue is not that this is a false accusation against her. So when we look at this, we said, did Jesus think adultery wasn't a big deal? It's clear that that's not the case. The other thing that he says that's super important is he says to her, now go and sin no more. You are not condemned, but you are guilty. Now you need to change your life. Now you need to change the way that you're, you're viewing the world and you need to change the path of your life and the choices that you're making. Don't keep going in this direction, which is also very interesting. Saying go and sin no more, we kind of read that and we're like, well, that's a tall order right? Does Jesus really expect her to carry that out, to never sin again? What happens if she does sin again? Is this forgiveness like a one-time thing, or how does it work? Well, like we said, she was guilty. And we know clearly from Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, adultery is against the will of God. It is evil to treat somebody like that. And not only that, but we also see in this passage clearly that as far as God's concerned, adultery is a really bad sin. It's a really dangerous thing. We look again at this passage. If a man is found lying with a married woman, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. God is saying this is the kind of thing that in the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of my chosen people. 
We cannot have this kind of thing going on. It's too dangerous. It's too powerful. And it has to be stopped. Now, we would say, isn't the death penalty for adultery a little extreme? It's not even illegal in our culture. And some of them, it's considered good marriage advice. That's where our culture has landed. The whole idea of, you know, what is family? What is marriage? What is fidelity? You know, has been eroding and eroding and eroding in our culture. And we get to the point where we're like, we see something like this, and it's just like, there's no way that that's right. There's no way that that's just. One of the things that we need to understand is that the Bible tends to weight sins differently than we do. You know, our culture has very heavy uh, laws for things like property loss, stealing, cheating, right? Biblically, those laws are much more lenient in the Bible because the material world and property is of some importance, but it's not nearly as important as relationships, And from God's perspective, the value of love and community and family and togetherness, those are the things that are of the greatest importance. And the things that destroy relationships are actually far weightier in Scripture. And the penalty is more severe because God is saying that's the stuff that really matters. And so... We find ourselves as 21st century Americans waiting these things out and saying, you know, is stealing $100,000 from your boss worse than adultery? And God's answer is clearly, no, adultery is more damaging. It's more destructive. The penalty for stealing is usually pay it back with a little bit more if you're caught in Scripture. But these kinds of things, these relational issues are weighted much more heavily. Now we could get in and we could ask even scarier and more bizarre questions, but I think the passage begs an answer to that question, doesn't it? Right? So we're looking at this and saying, well, if the Bible says we should be killing adulterers, should we as Christians be advocating or carrying out these sentences? Absolutely not. Well, why are we, you know, this is the kind of thing that's often, you know, uh, pointed out to Christians in the media. I've seen this multiple times in different TV shows where people say, well, they go back into the laws of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And what do they say? Well, you don't carry out these laws. You don't follow these laws. So why do you care about these other laws? And they claim that Christians are being contradictory. They're being hypocritical by picking the laws that they follow and the laws that they don't. What we need to understand is that there are laws, all the laws and all of scripture is inspired. It's God breathed. It is from the Lord and all of it has value. But there are things that are culturally specific in the Bible that are specific to a specific time, a specific place and a specific people. And we would not say that these laws are now wrong, but we would say, are these laws for all people or for all time or were there specific times and places where God was giving specific laws to specific people? The law that we've been reading in Deuteronomy 22 is a part of a long list of laws that are given in that book. And they fall under the category of what we would call civil laws, meaning they are the laws of the land of Israel during a specific time in Israel's history. And it is all connected to part of a covenant 
a, a contract that God was making with the people of Israel. This whole section where all of these laws are found begins in Deuteronomy 21.1. And what does it say? It says, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. God made a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. And he had a very specific purpose, a very specific idea of what, was, what, what, what this nation was to be at this time. This was literally a theocracy where God dwelled among them. They would follow him through the desert in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he was dwelling among them as their king. There was no king of Israel. There was God. Now, in the ancient world, when you had a nation, the king would come into power, and what would he do? He would write the laws of the land so that people would know what the will of the king is. If you've ever heard of Hammurabi's code, right? That's Hammurabi stepping up and saying, I'm in charge. Here's the rules. Well, the nation of Israel, under God, had the need for civil laws. What were the laws? How do we execute them? And there was a need for case law where you could go and you could say, well, in this case, in this penalty, there's this judgment in our land for our people. God's specific plan and the covenant in which this is connected to is that the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, would become a nation of priests Exodus 19, 5 through 6 gives us a really good summary of what God's vision was for this nation. He says, now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you were to speak to Israel. God's about to use the nation of Israel in an unprecedented way to drive out the people of the land, to be an instrument of his judgment, and to be the shining beacon of what God's will is for the people of the earth. He's saying, I want your entire nation to be a nation of priests who are going to represent me. And so he sets the bar for these people at this level, and it's a part of their agreement. He's saying, you don't have to come into the land. You don't have to go and be a part of this. But if you are agreeing that you want to be a part of my plan for the descendants of Abraham, then you are agreeing to these laws. And you're going to be held to this standard. And that's why we have these laws. Now, to say that we, this law doesn't count anymore would be incorrect. What we get from this law, what we understand from this law very clearly is the character of God. The severity of adultery from God's perspective is the same today as it has ever been because God is unchanging. And that we see that we can look at these laws and we can see the way kind of that God weights some of these things. And these relational laws are very strong. But there is no biblical theocracy on earth today. You might be like, well, there's a nation of Israel. It's like, yeah, but uh, there's not a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? There's a collection of people with a common history and a common ancestry that have set up, but they didn't set up their laws according to the Leviticus and Deuteronomy because they are not that nation of Israel. They're a new nation of Israel. 
And nowhere in the Bible does it say that we should be seeking to establish these laws and this theocracy in our nation anywhere. In fact, if we go to Romans 13, what we find is that as believers, we're supposed to be living all over the world and be under the submission, be under the authority of the government that we live in. And our job is not to overthrow the government and establish the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Our goal is to love our fellow man and make disciples and help people come to a place of understanding the love of God and the will of God, which takes things like adultery very seriously, but doesn't mean that the prescription that was there for the nation of priests in Israel apply today. We are not saying the law no longer matters. We are saying the law is fulfilled. The law shows us the character of God, but isn't meant to apply to all people for all time under those civil laws. So adultery is a sin according to scripture. The other thing I want to point to here is the order of operations because it is super important as well. What did he do with this woman? First, he said, I do not condemn you. Then he said, go and sin no more. It's very important that we understand how the mind of God works because we would tend to think and we would tend to process this and think about God that God says, if you'll stop sinning, I will forgive you. That's the vision of God that we get caught into our head. That's the, the God, God of law, right? Change your behavior and then I'll change my opinion about you. But that is not who God is and that is not how God works and that is not what Jesus does. God says, if you accept my love and my forgiveness, you will be out from under the power of sin and under the slavery of sin and you will be able to change. You receive the love and the forgiveness, the condemnation is removed and then there is freedom to behave differently. That's the way that God has made us, and that's the way that God works. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What he's saying is, is rather than putting yourselves in situations all the time where you're tempted to do evil, instead, put yourself in situations where you can do good. Why should I do that? That's what the four, right? That four is because... Because you have been freed from the law, meaning that you have been forgiven for all past, present, and future sins as a believer in Jesus Christ. He, God took all the penalty, all the punishment for all the things that you've done and will do and poured them out on Christ. And in the freedom that comes with that, with that Understanding and that realization that I am forgiven by God for all time, for all things, the natural outflowing of that is change and love and the desire to do good. 
as opposed to the fear threat motive that we suppose where God's got a gun to our head and says, if you don't change, you're going to hell. That never works. We never change. We feel shame and we feel guilt and then we go on doing the things that we feel terrible about. God says, it's my love. This is the way to real change. It's to recognize God's love for you, to receive God's free offer of forgiveness. You have to opt in to this. God loves you. God died for your sins, but he will not force you into a relationship with him. You have to agree to let Jesus' death pay for your sins. Otherwise, you still need to pay for them yourselves. This is an act of volition. This is an act of will. This is something that you can do right now. You can turn to God in your heart and say, I recognize that I have evil and I need your forgiveness. Please let Jesus' death apply it to me. And that that, according to scripture, changes the entire destination of, of eternity for you and changes the whole way that you connect with God. We're just like the woman caught in adultery, right? We're under the shame and the conviction of what we've done. We know that we are wrong. And God turns to us and says, do you want forgiveness? If so, then I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then, according to Scripture, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit that God actually comes and lives inside of us, dwells inside of us, and helps us understand right from wrong and helps us in the struggle, the ongoing struggle that continues until the day that you die to live a life that brings glory to God and to not be selfish. We continue to sin as Christians, but we continue a path that the Bible calls sanctification, which is, we sometimes call it walking with God, which is the process of trusting God more and more and learning how to rely on him rather than acting selfishly. And that path for all of us is littered with failure. It is littered with brokenness, but it is also full of God's grace, which is what enables us to move forward. Then we become vessels of God's love to others. And we get the opportunity to explain to others the evil and terrible things in our hearts that we've been forgiven for, the freedom and the joy that we've received by understanding the message and, and understanding who Jesus Christ is and letting them know, regardless of what their background is, where they come from, or how bad it's gotten, they can receive that love and that forgiveness as well. Romans 2, 4 says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? That word repentance, all that is is change. It is the love of God that leads you to change. Not the wrath of God, not the fear of God, not the threat of God, the love of God leads you to change. If you will allow yourself to experience the love of God, then you're in a place where you can begin to change, but not until then. So once again, Jesus shows us the way. 
He shows us who God really is. The Pharisees, right? They represent this twisted view of religion where they obey one part but not another. They pick and choose the parts that they want to follow. Kill the woman. Don't worry about the man. You know, uh, follow the dietary laws but don't love the poor. They put obedience over love and compassion. And that is not God's way. God wants obedience, but he wants obedience that's fueled by love. Love is the stuff that gets put into the engine that changes lives, specifically the love of God. The Pharisees will do whatever they feel like has to be done to protect themselves, to protect their power base, to protect their sense of self-importance and self-worth, even go against God himself if it violates their power. And they point the finger at others to draw the attention away from themselves. Look at this evil woman. And what does God do? He forgives her and points the finger back at them. And what do they do? They don't repent. They don't change. They don't say, oh my God, Jesus, you're so right. Under guilt and shame, they remove themselves from the presence of God. Because that's how false religion works. It makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel shameful. And it drives you away from the presence of God, not towards it. However, agreeing with God, I'm a sinner, and my choices in my life are not working. Understanding that and saying, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, will move you towards God and eternal life. Jesus represents the God of the Bible, not the religion of man. What we see is his compassion for broken people. We see a willingness on his part to bear the burden of our sin. He is perfect. He deserves zero judgment, but he takes all the judgment upon himself because he loves us. The God of the Bible gives us real reasons, real power to change You know, all of us want to change. There's something fundamental in the human condition that we want to be better than we are. Go to the self-help section of a bookstore and look at the incredible industry that's sprung up promising people that they can change. But God as our designer, as our creator, has told us the only way to change is through love. Specifically, my love. You were built to run and to be fueled by my love, and you're broken. And all these other things that we try to find inspiration from, all these other things that we're trying to find motivation from, that we try to fill ourselves up with to do these different things, only lead in the end to more brokenness and another self help book from another angle and another false ideology that will leave us down even deeper into a path of despair and hopelessness. I cannot be the person I wish I could be. And God stands there and says, why don't you give me a try? 
God has a high moral standard. There's no doubt about that. The highest. He has a perfect moral standard. He doesn't say to the woman, don't worry what you did. It's okay. No. He says, you're forgiven. Knock it off. It's bad for you. He loves us, but he brings us the truth as well. And he lifts others up rather than tearing them down. That's who the God of the Bible is. This little section ends with this statement that I just wanted to make sure that we included because it's so important. Jesus says, speaking to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, we see Jesus directing people to himself, right? He's not saying, uh, I am the servant of the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the true answer to the questions that are burning in your heart. You are dwelling in darkness, confused and alone, not knowing why you were made, not knowing that you're important, not knowing how incredibly important and loved that you are. And you are trying to figure this out. And you are being broken over and over and over again by false promises. And I am here, if you'll let me, to turn on the light so that you can see how things really are by coming to me. It's an awesome picture. It's an awesome picture of how great God really is. But it's so hard because of our pride and because of our our false belief that we should be better than we really are. And so I really just connect with what you're talking about there. Let's pray. God, your grace is unfathomable. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's so much deeper and so much more radical than anything that we would create, anything that we would be able to imagine or hope for. We thank you, God, that you are who you are and that you've shown us through Christ the reality of the depths of how far you will go to cover our sin. We pray for those who don't know you. We pray that they will hear you knocking on the door of their heart, that they'll hear this and that it will sink deeply into their consciousness and that if they're not ready, God, that they will wrestle openly uh, with this truth. And we pray for those of us, there's some of us here, God, that are, that are caught on the horns of a dilemma of, of our sin. Uh, and it could be adultery. It could be a lot of different things, but that We feel trapped, we feel in the darkness, and we just pray, God, that they would know that they are loved, that they are forgiven, and that the way back is to live in the light and to come to you and to others and receive grace, uh, and that that is where we find freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.